0: So you know, one really popular destination people like to go to is to Cape Town, South Africa. It's a great destination to get to if you want to make a trip to Africa. You have Cape Town itself, there are wine lands out there that you can visit. But a short ride away, if you want to have a good safari experience is in Kenya. And it's a way to have a safari experience where you're not having to spend 10 days in a safari destination. So
1: we're going to talk a little bit about the business of college sports. And I really wished that this sort of reform that we're talking about had been done gradually. But the NCAA has resisted reform. They needed to protect the golden goose of this constrained form of economics called amateurism.
2: Uh, The Alton F. Lloyd College of Medicine really came into being to help uh, serve underserved and rural folks in and around the state and, you know, I think the state also recognized that if if we can do this well, uh, this is a national problem and we could be an example for how uh, the rest of the states could help serve these communities as well.
3: That's Allison Johnson. Art Teal and Dr. John Tomkowiak. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. We are very pleased to have with us today National Geographic Senior Editor, Allison Johnson. I spoke with her about her latest project, and that's a book called 1,000 Perfect Weekends, which features 1,000 dream escapes all around the world from sunny beach retreats, and small-town charmers, to mountain getaways, and and much more. Now that we're coming out of COVID some, we still have to be cautious, but it looks like we can start traveling again, hopefully sooner than later, and she has a lot of things for you to dream about. And by the way, I just want to let you know I am not paid a promotional fee for this interview or any other interview I have on this show. Just want to make that clear. Have you been confused as me about the recent decision By the NCAA that allows college athletes to make money? I mean, the infrastructure bill took forever. This went from, I just kind of heard about it, and now it's happening. It's called NIL, which stands for Name, Image, and Likeness. I have a much better handle on this after hearing what sports columnist RTL had to say about the subject, and you will hear about what he had to say later in this hour. The founding dean of the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine, Dr. John Tom Kowiak, will be with us later in this hour as well. The medical college is located in Spokane and is under the umbrella of Washington State University. The medical college just celebrated its first graduating class in June of 2021 and achieved full accreditation around the same time. The mission of the medical college is to serve more rural areas around the state of Washington. If you have any comments about what you heard today on Voices of Experience, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Leave your comments. I will do my best to get them on the air, but please keep your comments as short as possible. That's 425-653-1166. And congratulations to the voters of the city of Seattle, and the region for that matter, for voting... In common sense and practical approaches to solving our critical problems. Back with my interview with Allison Johnson in just a moment.
4: (laughs) When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure.
3: Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of
4: Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score in the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com.
3: Coming up in just a moment is an interview I had with National Geographic senior editor, Allison Johnson. She has been the senior editor for National Geographic Books for quite some time, where she publishes travel, photography, cookbooks, and many other reference titles. Today, we're going to be talking about her latest project, and that's a book called One Thousand Perfect Weekends, which features a thousand dream escapes from sunny beach retreats and small town charmers to mountain getaways. So let's just get right to it. My interview with Allison Johnson. What type of vacations? You're talking weekend vacations in the local area. And then, of course, you have literally thousand perfect weekends around the world. And my question would be, uh, I, I get the weekend vacations around the area, but when you're going to another place, let's say Italy, how do you fit a weekend mm-hmm. in there? So what's your uh, recommendation?
0: Yeah, so, you know, a lot of times we plan these longer vacations. We have a week, even 10 days somewhere, especially when we're going internationally, because you want to make the most of a long plane ride getting somewhere. But you either might end up with a layover in a city where you need to find something to do for a day or two. And we have great options for common layover cities in this book. Or let's say you're going to Rome or, you know, recently my husband and I went to Thailand before the pandemic, obviously, but we were there. We had 48 hours in Bangkok before we went on to the rest of Thailand. So we were able to make a weekend out of Bangkok. We saw so much. We saw a number of temples, floating markets. We ate delicious food. We went to the night market there. So the idea is you're already abroad. You're already doing a great international trip in a faraway destination. Tack on an extra two or three days, be it a weekend or midweek, whatever you can fit in. To explore somewhere two to three hours, maybe outside of the region that you've called home base for that destination and make a weekend of your add a weekend to your trip abroad.
3: So that makes sense. So uh, let's say you're going to Chile and you're, you're going to explore there for like a couple of weeks. Where would you suggest someone would go there in terms of, let's say, a weekend
0: Yeah, so I think Chile is a really good one for adventure lovers. And there's an area in San Pedro, Chile, that has sand surfing. And so it's a great family destination, too. And so I would tack that on to a trip of the more popular sites and and touristy areas of Chile to go do some outdoor adventuring. And so you go out to these sand dunes and you strap a board onto your feet and it's like snowboarding but on really soft sand. And you're going to have beautiful vistas that you're looking at, but you're also going to have a lot of thrills while you're there, too.
3: Wow, sandboarding on, uh, or excuse, snowboarding on sand. That's amazing. Never heard of that.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, really fun.
3: So, what other places internationally do you think that if people have that flair to travel to different places? You mentioned Thailand. Let's say some other places mm-hmm. that would be, again, good to add on this weekend, couple days, uh, wherever they're going.
0: Yes. So, you know, one really popular destination people like to go to is to Cape Town, South South Africa. It's a great destination to get to if you want to make a trip to Africa. You have um, Cape Town itself. There are wine lands out there that you can visit. But a short ride away, if you want to have a good safari experience, is in Kenya. And it's a way to have a safari experience where you're not having to spend 10 days in a safari destination and do three game drives a day instead we actually have a road trip around mount kenya and you'll visit a chimpanzee sanctuary you'll go to the mount kenya safari club where you horseback ride around the mountain and then you'll also do the typical safari in maru national park and you get that that safari wildlife experience all built into this miniature weekend in africa so if you're already heading to cape Town or another area or another country in africa a quick plane ride over into kenya gets you this experience
3: well i was in cape town south africa in the early 1980s and i did do a safari and uh it Mm -hmm. was in uh, kruger national park but Mm -hmm. um i gotta say i've said to anybody who will listen that was the most Mm -hmm. incredible experience i've ever had and as a matter of fact I want to do it again, and I'm talking to some people about doing it in the next couple of years. So anyhow, I concur with that. If you're going to Cape Town, which is a beautiful city, I had no idea it was so beautiful. Um, I guess mm-hmm. I should have, but I didn't. But going <laughs> on that uh, tour and uh, doing the safari, and it was only like two or three days, but it was yeah. it, it left an impression in my mind that I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's one a one in, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.
3: Before we get into some local trips in Washington, Oregon, tell me more about this book, what we'll see. I have not seen it, so I want to get a description from you.
0: Great. So it's a big book. It's 720 pages, 1,000 weekend destinations, which comes out to 19 years' worth of traveling. And so we divided the book up. By how people like to travel. So, every chapter is built around the type of experience you want to have be that a beach vacation, mountain vacation, if you want to have a family friendly vacation or a pet friendly vacation. Even um, we have a chapter called Enabled Adventures, which focuses on ability friendly destinations. Um, And then throughout, you'll also find top 10 lists that even get more specific to what you might look for. So if you love to visit places that have a beautiful sunrise, you can find top 10 destinations for sunrises. You can find the top 10 destinations if you want to go to movie sets and television filming locations. There's also the top 10 museums. So really, whatever type of traveler you are, there's a diversity of locations and experiences to be had throughout.
3: Wow. Wow. It's amazing. It's like uh, really a traveler's paradise in a book. I mean, if you're going to, (laughs) again, uh, go out to these places. Um, Let's get to then um, some places around the Northwest. Uh, I mentioned to you I live in Seattle. And if someone Mm
0: -hmm.
3: wanted to take a weekend trip around here, let's say uh, Vancouver, Oregon, Washington, what would you suggest?
0: Yeah, so Oregon is one of, the best places our writers have found for those who love to be outdoors and have some adventures and bend Oregon and specific specifically it's really a four seasons destination. So no matter what time of year you visit, you're going to find outdoor activities to do skiing, kayaking, mountain biking, camping. They have outdoor food courts, microbreweries, and coffee carts. So it's a really great place to be for a weekend. If you want to be outside I think there's 300 miles of biking trails and 44 miles of cross-country skiing trails. So there's lots to do and see there. So that's definitely top of mind if you're more of an adventure traveler. Um, if you love food, we have a great recommendation for a food tour in Vancouver that takes you. You can choose from one of four different food tours that focuses on various types of eating from different um new restaurants in the historic restaurant district, or you can do the famous public markets in Vancouver, or even an authentic Asian eats tour where it takes you to the world-class Chinatown in Vancouver. So that's a weekend if you're a foodie type of traveler. And then if you're looking for, you know, something right in Washington, one of my favorite entries is um, a beach and rainforest excursion in the Olympic Peninsula and you're going to head to areas where there are 500-year-old Sitka spruce trees and you're going to go into Bainbridge Island and really explore the coast as well if you're there on the right time you might see some whales and so there's lots of opportunities plenty more in that area in this book that I haven't mentioned but tons to do that's just a short drive away.
3: Yeah, I guess we can't cover all 1000 weekend getaways <laughs> in a few minutes but uh You know, you've inspired me. I've lived here a long time, and I've never done that uh, trip out to the peninsula with all those, uh, you know, age-old trees and and the, the coastline. I've just heard incredible things about that. So about time i I do that i mean people travel across the world to get here to do that and i i'm a ferry boat right away from bainbridge island you know so anyhow i'm gonna do something like that and the whole
0: rainforest is definitely worth visiting too out there
3: (laughs) how did you get your uh real love for travel
0: you know i was lucky enough i grew up in a household where traveling was really important for my parents to expose me to they you know they view it as an educational experience too. You get out and see the world, you experience different cultures and places, and it's a great way to learn about the world you live in. And then as I grew into an adult, I worked for Rachel Ray magazine before National Geographic, where I covered travel along with food. And then my world came together with National Geographic when I started working here eight years ago and was able to really dive in the world of travel with our books division and, I say I have the luckiest job in the world because when I'm not traveling myself, I can travel from my desk every day doing what I do.
3: Excellent. Anything else before we go?
0: Just find the book wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and I really hope it inspires people to get out there and explore.
3: Well, after COVID and all this lockdown, I'm sure there were a lot of people like myself wanting to do just what you're saying.
0: Yep, I think we're all ready to get out there again.
3: My thanks to Allison Johnson. Again, the book is called 1,000 Perfect Weekends, which again features 1,000 dream escapes from sunny beaches to small towns and mountain getaways, and not just in this country, throughout the world. Um, Two things. First of all, I am not paid for any promotional fees for this book or any other guest you hear on the show. And uh, I did not get an advanced copy of this book. Sometimes I do... But in this case, I didn't. So um, I'm operating just like you, my eyes and ears, trying to imagine what this book would be like. It's on Amazon and all the usual book outlets. Art Teal spoke to the Seattle Rotary Club about the NCAA's new rule that allows college athletes to get paid in addition to their scholarships that most receive to play a particular sport. It is referred to as NIL, N-I-L, which means name, image, and likeness. If there is anyone who can break it down so we can understand what is going on, it's Art Teal. Art has been illuminating, agitating, amusing, and annoying Puget Sound sports readers for a long time. Now, that's on his website. I'm not saying that, but I kind of agree with that in what he says. Great self-awareness, Art. So let's pick up with Art Teal with insights into what is referred to as name, image, and likeness in the
1: NCAA. So we're going to talk a little bit about the business of college sports. And I really wished that this sort of reform that we're talking about had been done gradually. But the NCAA has resisted reform. They needed to protect the golden goose of this constrained form of economics called amateurism for more than 100 years. And it's, um, it's just simply because football and men's basketball have taken such a precedence over the universities, uh, especially the major universities. I think uh, one of the great summary quotes about how this work came from Groucho Marx in a 1932 movie, Horse Feathers, where he was Professor Wagstaff, president of Huxley College, and he looked at a group of his uh, astonished fellow professors and he said, what this football team needs is a college it can be proud of. I have always remembered that quote because it does talk about some of the misplaced priorities that have taken over big time college sports. So what I'm going to do here is give you a little bit of background, uh, historical background first, on how we got to this strange place called NIL. That acronym stands for name, image, and likeness that are shaking college sports like it's never been shook. The NCAA has been losing a series of court decisions that said uh, they can't restrict the earning power or fail to compensate the athletes for the use of their names, images, and likenesses in an industry that has exploded in wealth with the TV rights money. So that uh, those court decisions, including one in June, on a case called Alston versus NCAA took the last argument the NCAA had about retaining amateurism saying that schools cannot deny a particular group of athletes the same ability to make money in college as the rest of the student body. There are no tax dollars at work to fund the athletic department at UW, but that's not true at Washington State and there are many other colleges around the country that can't continue to fund the variety of sports without some sort of subsidy from the general fund of university budgets. So the big fear is that the complications of NIL will only add to the problem. Some of the the players are doing fine. Many, this is the first time they've ever had access to money. And we're talking about 18, 19 year old kids, some of them coming from impoverished environments. So this is really a, you know, it's a hard thing to, administer. What's happened is it allows businesses who may not have had a reason to affiliate with the university program to find a niche market for endorsements, particularly from women athletes. I think the obvious expectation was that money is going to flow to the top half dozen or 10 football stars, two or three men's basketball stars. And maybe there might be an outstanding woman here or there, but the assumption had been that the money would follow the star power. All the schools, even though they knew this was coming, are going to have mixed results in terms of execution. There has been one noteworthy development uh, in Pullman in Washington state. And I thought this was a fairly clever idea. Um, There was a a player, Max Borgie, a running back who is an all pack 10 all pack 12 caliber player, who's going to, he's going to be an obvious target for a lot of people for his money. And what he's promised publicly is he's going to give all the proceeds for what he, uh, for what he receives personally to his offensive linemen who are blocking for him and making him a top player. I kind of like that idea. You know, I think other advantages would accrue here in Washington eventually by getting paid internships for athletes at Microsoft, Google, Facebook, any of the tech companies who are looking to um, engage with the university in original ways and get kudos for giving uh, young athletes a leg up by, uh, with the paid internships. And then, I, as I said before, the opportunity for um, women athletes is here because there will be a number of products and social media outlets that appeal to women that will finally have access to women's sports that will have a direct one-to-one connection and elevate the product and also elevate the uh, uh, all the women athletes' um, lifestyles. I do think it's going to be extremely disruptive to all of college sports, and there are going to be some schools that are going to have to quit playing football. My analogy for what's happening here comes from the movie, The Godfather, where the, the Corleone family suddenly decides to go in its own way and commits all sorts of crime sprees and mayhem. And then the Tattaglia families and the Barzini's and, and the uh, Cuneo's and the Sponsi's, the, the, all of these families are saying, we need to create an alignment so that we agree not to kill each other while we go after the Corleone's. And that's kind of what we've got here is um, a, a fight among the families in the NCAA. And each of them are looking, some of them are looking out for each other, but most of them are now looking at the Southeastern South Conference. In fact, Kirk Schultz, who's the president of Washington State, said he was at Kansas State and 10 years ago. So he understands exactly what's happened here because the two schools that left were part of of the conference that he was in. And he said that he thinks the Southeastern Conference is being predatory. None of this is a healthy way to run a sport, but there's never been a healthy way to run big time college football and basketball. So um, this is a, a new evolution is happening, happening faster than anybody really anticipated, and the potential for tumult, upset, mayhem, disorder, bewilderment is great. What's the cut between what an athlete gets and what the college gets? There is no cut for the college, it's 100% to the athlete. This has not been done before. Things could change, but that is the way of the world. It's going to be all for athletes and the university are going to have to spend money probably to help the athletes manage this new field, which includes the ability to hire agents.
5: How will payments to athletes to cheat from gamblers be addressed, one, and boosters paying players to
1: go to a particular school? We kind of touched on this, just like the NIL. This is going to lessen the influence of gambling in college athletics, and it really that hasn't been a too big a deal now in the, uh, this era. But um, if players are getting money, they're not going to be getting desperate to fix games. Do you think existing sports agents and managers who work for
5: pro athletes will swoop in and manage student athletes, or might these create a new industry for people who specialize in spe- in particular
1: categories? I think the agents are already swooping. Uh, They are cultivating the relationship with young athletes now at 18. Actually, they do it at 60 and 15, but now it's formalized. They can make a relationship, and they want to sustain that relationship through the athlete's college career into a pro career. Since the NFL is using college Facebook as their minor league, shouldn't they be kicking in some bucks? The NFL has just shrugged and said, well, no, it's a free farm system. We will try to support you know where we can, but not with cash.
3: That sports columnist Art Teal during a presentation to the Seattle Rotary Club. Art wrote a compelling book about the Seattle Mariners called Out of Left Field, which became a regional bestseller. His radio commentaries can be heard Friday and Saturday mornings and Friday afternoons on KPLU FM. He is also a columnist with the News Tribune of Tacoma, and he hosts an online sports website called Sports Press Northwest. Dot com. that's sportspressnorthwest.com of Medicine, John Tom Kowiak is with us. The Medical College is located in Spokane and is under the umbrella of Washington State University. Dr. Tom Kowiak came to WSU in 2015 from Chicago Medical School where he served as Dean, Acting Chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. The Medical College was named after the late Elson S. Floyd, President of Washington State University from 2007 until his untimely death in 2015. The medical college just celebrated its first graduating class and achieved full accreditation around the same time. So we'll start out with uh, WSU when it began as a college of medicine, the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine. And um, going back to 2015 when it was established, why did the state of Washington need another College of Medicine? Well, it really
2: has to do with what our uh, mission and vision eventually evolved into, which is to solve problems in challenging healthcare environments. And the state recognized that particularly in underserved and rural areas across the state, uh, we had a lot of ways that we can improve and deliver better health care uh, to folks in those communities. And so uh, the Elton F. Floyd College of Medicine really came into being to help uh, serve underserved and rural folks in and around the state. And, you know, I think the state also recognized that if if we can do this well, uh, this is a national problem, and we could be an example for how uh, the rest of the states could help serve these communities as well.
3: And uh, you just really graduated your first class very recently in February of 2021, I think 60 students.
2: Yes, actually, in May uh, is when they graduated. But they did have an an important event, uh, which was Match Day, where um, there's a national matching system uh, in the United States, uh, where uh, students in their final fourth year of medical school have to apply to a residency program and. Uh, through this match system, they are matched with the appropriate residency. And we had an incredibly successful match for our first uh, group of students. And we're very excited, uh, you know, that uh, in part, they chose to stay in Washington to get trained. They uh, stayed on the Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, if it wasn't specifically Washington or or on the West Coast. Uh, And in addition, they got accepted to some, uh, you know, really great programs across the country, which I think is a testament to the model that we put forward, uh, because a lot of the things that we tried um, hadn't been tried before uh, in the extent that we did it.
3: And uh, you also, when I say you also, the College of Medicine uh, received full accreditation around that same time. And, uh, that's that's exactly right. And that was pretty, um, impressive. And I under the impression that it, it doesn't happen that quickly a lot of times that you must be really heading in the right direction for it to happen that soon.
2: Well, yeah, we, we did did it, uh, quicker than, uh, other medical schools in contemporary times. And when I say that, you know, since the two thousands, uh, have been able to do that. And I, I do think it, it was a part because we, we did have a very experienced team of uh, educators who, uh, understand sort of not only what the current requirements are, but, you know, where are the places that we could be innovative and creative and yet still demonstrate to the accreditors that we had, you know, all the uh, right values and principles, the nuts and bolts in place to ensure uh, that our students would be uh, adept in their skills and their attitudes, uh, but also uh, while still having a vision towards the future and, you know, how do we train them so that they're not only prepared for practice in the next five to 10 years, but also prepared to practice for the rest of their lives.
3: Are you confident that the students who are dispersing elsewhere, and then coming back, or even around the Northwest, they're going to fulfill the mission of going into, let's say, more rural areas to practice medicine,
2: Yes, and and we really look at that as, um, you know, two different ways they might do that. Uh, definitely some of them uh, have, you know, already stated their intentions to come back to areas in rural Washington, uh, oftentimes the place where they still have family or where they uh, spent growing up. Uh, and so we know there are going to be some uh, docs that fall into that category. The other important category, though, is with the advent of telehealth and other technologies where we can now take care of patients at a distance. Uh, We do feel that a part of our mission is also going to be fulfilled that way. And uh, that that is really something, because in order to take care of people in uh, rural and underserved areas, you need to understand those communities and what their needs are, because the needs are significantly different uh, than uh, urban populations that, you know, have all the bells and whistles and services, you know, right next door. And so uh, we've done an amazing job, I think, at giving our students uh, a first-class experience in not only uh, practicing medicine in those rural communities, but beginning to understand those communities and what those needs are. And so even if they're taking care of a community at a distance, they're going to be able to do it exceptionally well uh, because of that knowledge and training.
3: You know, it's interesting you mentioned telehealth, and that's now the buzzword. But when we had an interview a couple years ago, we Touched on that briefly, but now it's everywhere because of the pandemic. So in a sense, yeah. you're kind of headed the curve there in terms of implementing that type of model. And I think, and you can correct me on this, is even in urban centers, that's going to be used a lot more as well.
2: Absolutely. And if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, and it's, it's hard to find one sometimes, but both the acceptance on the part of providers and patients has really accelerated for telehealth. Uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, studies showed maybe 10 to 15 percent of both providers and patients were willing to have visits that way. And now, you know, depending on the data you look at, it's well above 50 percent in some studies, you know, 70 to 80 percent, especially for common things, primary care, follow ups, uh, things of that nature. And so, you know, I think many of the forward thinking healthcare care organizations in the country uh, have already decided that a telehealth model is going to be the primary way, they engage with patients, particularly in a preventative medicine or in a a primary care capacity, uh, recognizing that, um, you know, the quality of that care can be uh, as good or sometimes even better, depending on how you're measuring it, than if a person has to, you know, drive to a bricks and mortars location uh, and all the uh, challenges that that sometimes uh, affords patients, uh, depending on where they are. So, uh, You know, this this is, I think, really important and is going to be, I think, uh, a large part of how healthcare is going to change going forward. Uh, And it's also going to change the way we think about how providers uh, do their jobs and, you know, what are the ways in which we practice and engage with patients? Um, You know, if we would have had this conversation 10 uh, years ago and you might have mentioned that a provider would be emailing or maybe uh, texting a patient or communicating with them on a daily or regular basis through a patient portal, Uh, I think most providers would have laughed at you. Uh, But that's exactly what's happening now. And and almost all clinicians are engaged in those things, which 10 years ago, no one really would have even thought uh, that would be a thing. So, um, There are so many uh, good things that are happening right now, and what we really need is a system that puts these things together, uh, uses the best uh, that we have available, sort of the best practices we have available, uh, because I think if we do that, we get to a place where we do make uh, healthcare more affordable, more accessible, uh, and with better outcomes and better patient satisfaction. So, of course, that's the, the goal we're all striving for.
3: Do you think COVID has had a long-term impact on, let's say, your job and the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine mission, or is this kind of a blip for right now and then five or six years from now, assuming we we can get out of this at some point, that you'll look back on it and we'll be back to normal, or is this what we have just experienced? Is this going to have impact going forward for many years?
2: Absolutely. And, and I think the, the reason that answer is absolutely is because I do believe, like I just mentioned, that health care is going to be forever changed. And I believe for the better because of the pandemic. Uh, the fact that uh, both providers and patients have come to accept telehealth uh, so significantly, uh, the fact that there has been um, a significant increase in uh, electronic and electronic monitoring of different uh, patient uh, care indicators uh, and indices, all of that is going to lead to a clinician and a healthcare team that has more data about patients uh, and their well-being wherever that patient is, whether they're in their home, on the road, in their workplace, and we'll be able to uh, help patients monitor their health uh, way better, I think, than we've ever done before, and identify problems or, or illnesses uh, before they become uh, more significant and more serious uh, and intervene with care, uh, again, potentially maybe wherever patients are. So as soon as you realize that that is going to be healthcare going forward, Uh, then it necessarily means that the way we educate our future workforce, you know, has to really resonate with that. And so that means we got to develop some additional skills in our future uh, clinicians uh, so that they can be facile in that environment. You know, we, they need to be excellent communicators across uh, a telemedium, which, uh, you know, is an art into a uh, when you're trying to connect with a patient uh, over a video link. Uh, and um, the other thing they need to do is understand how to use all of this myriad of data, way more data than we've ever had in the past about a patient's uh, health and well-being. How do we put that all together to better understand, you know, the health of a patient and how how they can help uh, intervene in their own uh, either health or illness uh, to the maximum effect? So um, it, it really... I think has changed uh, health science education forever. And uh, if if we're going to do our best to uh, be great patient advocates, we are not going to uh, rest on our laurels here. And we're going to continue to you know think about how do we train this next generation of providers uh, to understand the technologies and the things that we will have available that haven't even yet been invented.
3: Hmm. Fascinating. Are there um, things that you go back now? You've been the dean since
2: 2015.
3: Yes. And looking at that moment when you were walking into, let's say, the medical college for the first time and you were hired and things, what are some pleasant surprises that you may have experienced going back to that moment and maybe some challenges that you didn't anticipate? We've talked certainly about covid but let's talk with the pleasant surprise. Let's say that being a dean of uh, a founding dean actually of a, a college of medicine, what that has meant to you
2: yeah well it it truly has been the the opportunity of a lifetime and and I would say pleasantly, um, you know the reception that we have received from uh, community stakeholders across the state, whether they be uh, business owners or leaders, or uh, mayors from towns, or folks that are in healthcare in underserved and rural areas, who are really happy that there's a partner that's focused on uh, their needs and you know what they're all about. Uh, That has been a real joy. Um, There really hasn't been anyone we've encountered who uh, didn't want to have a conversation about how we could partner uh, for better health for patients across the state, and, uh, you know, we reached a mile mark uh, just this past month, and we now have over 200 uh, healthcare partners across the state of Washington that are working with the Alston Floyd College of Medicine. And uh, that's an, a, a, a crazy milestone that I, I probably wouldn't have thought we would have reached in, in just six years of being on the job, uh, but is a real testament to, I think, how uh, hungry uh, partners are across the state for someone who is focused on their mission.
3: Anything else uh, you'd like to mention before we go? Um,
2: well, yeah, I guess, uh, yes. So one of the things I think our college uh, ha- did well during the pandemic is uh, we were incredibly proactive. And I, I just want to brag a little bit about my team. Uh, we had a team in our educational technologies department that as the pandemic was brewing, this is in January or February of uh, 2020, uh, before any of the uh, mandates uh, came down uh, on a federal level or work work from home policies, things like that, our team identified that this could be an issue and we started doing simulations of uh, virtual technologies that we could employ to help train our patients if we could not train them in a classroom and we were working on that a couple months before anybody had the idea that, you know, we might have to have them learn from home and learn in a virtual environment. And uh, I, I want to say, I think that's one of the maybe advantages of being a brand new school is we have a, a group of faculty and staff who are constantly thinking of, about the future and how do we do things better. And uh, I think that's been a large part of our success and I hope that our organization continues to have that attitude, whether we're in the pandemic or not, because I I think the best organizations have people that are constantly asking the question, you know, how can we do this better? And, uh, uh, I want. I, I hope that uh, everyone in healthcare uh, also has that question uh, on their minds every day. You know, how can we take care of our patients better? Uh, how do we get to the next level either as an individual provider or as an organization so that we can do our best uh, each and every day? And uh, I've been blessed to have an amazing team here at the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine who has that attitude. And I think that's one of the reasons we've been so successful.
3: My thanks to the founding Dean, of Washington State University's Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine, Dr. John Tomkowiak.
0: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
3: In my book, I have eight myths about self-employment. Today, I'm going to be addressing myth number two. Small businesses fail because they are undercapitalized. There's a common misperception that startup businesses fail because they don't have enough money. In my experience, the opposite is true. Many startups fail because they have too much money. Yes, you heard that right. In the dawn of your business, all you have going for you are concepts. If you don't have a lot of money sitting around, You can't blow it. Your overall goal should be to keep your business going until it becomes profitable. Sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? Startups with little money are more likely to spend it wisely and carefully. They keep careful track of their budgets and expenses, employ low-cost marketing campaigns, and try not to take on any unnecessary expenditures. On the other hand, startups with a lot of money are less careful with it. If they get a generous infusion of cash from a rich uncle or angel investors, they may feel obliged to do more, be more, spend more, grow faster. They try to maximize their business and make it as big as possible when they should be keeping expenditures at an absolute minimum until the business is more established. Many well-funded startups are notorious for spending themselves into oblivion while trying to establish themselves as the big players in the marketplace. And you know what? Most of them are just not ready for prime time. As it turned out, when I started my business, I started with very little money. In the long run, this turned out to be a blessing. I've known numerous entrepreneurs whose lives were just a little bit too easy and therefore did not feel they had to work as hard in order to make their business succeed. In the end, this may have cost them their business.
0: Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos, she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at kw.com.
1: Get it, slip it, check Talk to Dr. now
3: That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Allison Johnson, Artiel, and Dr. John Tom Kowiak for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. The election is over. Couldn't come soon enough. The candidates and the issues have been decided, at least for now. But Seattle and King County definitely took a step towards moderation, and what many believe, including me, towards a more common sense approach. To solving our very serious challenges. So let's get behind all of the winners for right now and wish them well, and hopefully that they will do what you should do in politics, and that's compromise. I believe that's what the citizens of Seattle and King County and the entire state of Washington want. So let's wish that for ourselves and, of course, the office holders that we elected. Voices of Experience is simulcast on KIXI AM 880 and KKNW AM 1150 on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and then rebroadcast on Sundays on Kixie at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today? Call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Keep your comments short and I will get them on the air if possible. That number again is 425 653 1166 what is voices of experience all about we talk with people with experience in public affairs travel like today education like today sports like today entertainment adventure and with an emphasis on entrepreneurship what drives this show my belief is that experience is our best coach speaking of experience i urge you to tune into reigniting you with Lisa Downs on Monday afternoons at 3 p.m. Are you thinking about a career change? Are you thinking about retiring or semi-retiring? She covers it all. Try to really imagine what your next steps are. Tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs right here on Kixie Monday afternoons at 3 p.m. Let's close today's show with the first pro sports play-by-play announcer in the history of Seattle, Bob Blackburn. The Seattle Supersonics began playing basketball in the then-Seattle Center Coliseum in 1967. As a side note, my wife and I went to a Kraken game last week at Climate Pledge Arena. Quite an upgrade. Back to Bob Blackburn. Bob Blackburn called the Sonics games on radio. There were very few games on TV then, but he did that on radio from 1967 till he retired in 1992. I recorded this interview in the late 1990s when I was doing a radio show on Kixie called Voices of Experience. Bob Blackburn, one of the classiest individuals I've ever met and one of the very best broadcasters ever.
5: Talking with Bob Blackburn. The name Bob Blackburn is synonymous with professional sports in Seattle. The Supersonics was Seattle's first professional sports franchise and began playing in the Seattle Center Coliseum during the season of 1967-1968. Therefore, the first professional pro sports announcer in Seattle was Bob Blackburn, who began broadcasting Sonic basketball from the very first game. 25 years and 2,325 games later, bob retired from the sonic microphone How about your uh... uh looking at players what would their uh, well even not necessarily sonics any type of players that your favorite over the years you're Well,
6: it is very difficult There again to pick out favorite players because you start doing it with your own team and you're going to, to you're going to miss forget a lot of somebody people. right yeah i, I mean there are certain guys there are certain people that obviously stand out in your mind through the years Lenny Wilkins stands out in my mind because of the class individual, because of his great talents as a player, and his ultimately good talents as a coach. Gus Williams stands out in my mind as the guy who was perhaps the key leader with the Seattle Supersonics to their championship. So those, those are a couple of guys right there. And, of course, uh, Jack Sigma. Uh, I tell you, the members of the championship team, I have a soft spot in my heart for all of them because every time they have a reunion and get-together, they always call up the old voice of the Sonics and invite him to participate. I didn't score a basket or get a rebound for that team, but I did their broadcast, and they still regard me as part of that team, and I think that's wonderful.
5: Did you get a ring or something
6: for the championship? Yeah, I see it right yeah, there. Yeah, it's very very right nice. there. They man. gave you that. That's 1979. That 1979, was the year. it has Blackburn and the Seattle Supersonics, their logo on one side, the NBA logo on the other. The top of the ring is in the form of a basketball and it says World NBA World Champ.
5: That's great. Did uh, you have, let's say, a fondest memory in broadcasting of all your games?
6: If I were to go to fond memories or great memories, it would take a book. But obviously, I think, Paul, if I were to take the fondest memory, it has to be the instant when the buzzer sounded and Gus Williams threw the ball high in the air and the horn started honking out in the Northwest and the Sonics had won their first ever uh, NBA championship. It was just a special euphoric feeling at that moment but I have arrived. I have been the broadcaster, the radio, TV broadcaster of a team that is now known as the not just the NBA champs, but really basically the world champions. They say it right on the ring here. Sure. And I think at that moment, there were, there were many other very pleasant moments of great instances of great plays that I remember. Uh, but that has to
5: be the top. I'd say a personal satisfaction for you was in 1970 was the year that you broadcast the NBA All-Star Game throughout the world?
6: In we did the NBA All-Star Game. Well, actually, I had had done some worldwide broadcast, or at least a a major broadcast on NBC prior to that, back in the late 60s when Oregon State played in the football, uh, the Rose Bowl football game against Michigan. I did the uh, broadcast for NBC at that time, which went coast to coast and worldwide. So I haven't done a lot of what you'd call national-type broadcasting, but do
5: you have an incident uh, in broadcasting that wasn't so
6: pleasant. There have been a lot of times when I was the sonic announcer that I was also my own engineer. And I'll never forget the time that one time somebody in Chicago, we were broadcasting on the sidelines, and somebody reached down, and they had the, they, they had the lines, the electric lines going out from the sideline, and uh, some people in the stands could reach down. Somebody reached down and pulled the plug out. Well, I didn't realize where that plug was. And here I am trying to broadcast, and I finally, I'm talking into a dead mic. Everything everything has gone dead. And I'm talking into a dead mic.
5: Is this in the middle of a game, or just oh, it fire No, this, a during play by play. Play this by is play. during play-by-play. Okay. This is during play-by-play. And right. the next thing, I
6: got a call. You're off the air. Now I have to, as the engineer, I have to go find out what's wrong. So I'm in a panic situation there for a moment. I mean, moments like that used to be, I think that's one of the moments, one of the times that led to my ultimate heart surgery in 83, frankly. That kind of did that it. That paying for six, six kids through 26 years of college. <laughs> that kind of adds up.
5: <laughs> well, speaking about salaries and money, uh, one player's salary today is the entire team, 12-man team of the Supersonics in 1967. Twice 68. as much as the entire team in the 67 season. Exactly. We hear a lot about that's destroying the sport or it's not good for the sport or whatever. What's your feeling on that?
6: Well, to me, it ultimately is going to destroy the sport. I, I hate to say it. I, I, I don't care what sport it is. But to me, the ticket prices for going to ball games now for all sports are getting so far out of reach of the common man. And to me, the common person, the average person, the blue-collar worker has been the person who has supported sports so well in the stands during the years. And now, because of all of the executive boxes, the sky boxes, what have you, it's becoming a corporate-type participation. You don't see the same Sonic fans out there that you saw 25 years ago, for, or 28 years ago, when the, when the team started. It, sure. It's a lot different thing, and ultimately, ultimately, it has to take its toll, as far as I'm concerned. The Golden Goose uh, can only lay so many golden eggs, and, and I think that it, it has to stop one of these days. i tell you what it's going to stop, too, and I think baseball is going to be the first one to see it when some teams go bankrupt.
3: My name is Paul Casey. Thanks for listening. Quote of the week. The speed of communications is wondrous to behold. It is also true that speed can multiply the distribution of information that we know is untrue. Edward R. Merle.